You're listening to episode number 19 of the Boys Built Better podcast. Today, we're talking about understanding sexual assault, sexual harassment, and consent. Welcome to the Boys Built Better podcast. I'm Jessica, a mom of three boys who is just trying to do things better. I'm coming to you from Fort Collins, Colorado, where I live with my husband, our boys, and a whole lot of four-legged friends. I'm here to share my thoughts on raising boys in today's world, find answers to your parenting questions, and chat with experts about building happy, healthy boys. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening today. Today, we are starting um, what's going to be a lot of content about sexual assault, sexual harassment, and consent. And I'm really excited about it. I had reached out to the Sava Center, which is here in town where I live. It's a sexual assault victim advocate center. And I asked if they would come on the show and talk about how, as parents, we should teach children consent. And we met and kind of chatted about what that includes and and came up with the idea of not only a show about teaching consent, but really diving deeper. So we're going to talk about what consent is along with what harassment and assault is. We're going to talk about how to teach your kids consent. And then we're also going to talk about raising boys in this era of Me Too. And those are all going to be three separate shows. Uh, and it happens to coincide with April, which is a sexual assault awareness month. So it's a lot of great content for boy parents, for any parents really, um, at a really appropriate time. Um, so today we're talking with Hannah Butler, who's a prevention education coordinator at Saba. And we are kind of just getting to understand and defining sexual assaults, defining sexual harassment and defining consent so that we're kind of all starting on the same foot. And, and, and I feel like you might think you know it all, but I guarantee you that you don't because I learned a lot of information in this interview and some stuff that I feel like, gosh, parents should really know about what is and what isn't assault. And I guarantee you there's some things that are going to surprise you. For those parents that have younger kids, I would listen to this episode. Some of this content might be more specifically slanted to having older children, but I guarantee you when we start talking about teaching consent, that's going to be the kind of thing that you start to teach younger than you would think. And if you're going to be teaching consent, I feel like you should have all of this kind of defining stuff first. So um, with all of that, let's cut on over to the interview. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great, Jessica. How are you? I am good. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Um, but before we get started, for listeners who are not familiar with you, can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about yourself? Yeah, so... Um my name's Hannah. You already said it. Um, but I work here at the Sexual Assault Victim Advocate Center as one of the prevention education coordinators. Um, also an advocate. Everyone here on staff answers the phones, um, deals with crisis calls. But what I'm doing mainly is going into middle schools and working with our uh, Speak Up program, where we um, teach students all about things like consent and sexual assault, but also um, self-esteem, healthy living, all sorts of things like that. It's really fun. <laughs> That's great. And I'm talking to you because we're doing kind of a series of episodes on consent, mm -hmm. which I'm really excited about because I think 
for lack of a better word, it's kind of a hot topic right now, but I love that we're kind of breaking it down and that you've got a lot of information about just really understanding it more, because I think it's a word that people say a lot, but maybe Mm -hmm. don't understand. So today specifically, you and I are talking about understanding consent, understanding assault, what all of that is. Mm-hmm. Um, before we even talk about like how you teach it to kids, let's understand, let, like, let's get everybody on the same page. Can you give us some basics on understanding maybe assault to start with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So when understanding um, sexual assault and other types of sexual violence or just violent crimes in general, like um, physical abuse, you know, those like the very heavy, very serious um, types of violence that we see in our culture and our society. When we uh, teach our students in, in middle schools about these, we sort of break it down. Um, we don't just start right off there with all of these violent crimes, right? We... Um, We teach them about uh, the pyramid of violence, which is a tool that Sava Center uses um, in understanding why those violent crimes happen, um, because we at Sava don't feel that they just happen out of the blue, right? Sexual assaults aren't just occurring left and right um, just because people you know, feel like doing that. It's because of these um, lower levels, I guess, is sort of what we call it, lower levels of violence that exist in our culture to support those higher levels um, for happening. So the pyramid of violence here I have with me, and I can give like a link for that image to be on on your podcast if you'd like. Um, But the the pyramid of violence begins at the bottom here with uh, stereotypical roles um, or stereotypes. And what we sort of explain to the kids is, you know, are stereotypes bad? No, not all of them are necessarily bad. It's sort of something that we as humans naturally do because it's impossible for us to understand um, intimately every single person in the world and and get to know everyone on a personal level. So our brain uh, categorizes people to help us make sense of the world. Um, And that's not necessarily a negative thing. But when stereotypes do become negative and can become a form of violence is when we force people to adhere to stereotypes that we've created in our culture. Um, So at Sava Center, since we're dealing with sexual assaults um, and sexual violence mainly, what we really do is focus in on gender stereotypes. So stereotypes that we have about men, stereotypes that we have about women, Um, that are not necessarily bad, right? Like a stereotype that we have about guys is that all men, you know, really like sports. They have to be athletic. They have to be strong. And of course, it's fine if there is a boy, a man, anyone who does that, right? Who it fits in that box. Um, But what becomes negative is, you know, if there's a guy who's not athletic, he's not strong. Um, We also have the stereotype where men can't cry if a guy is crying, right? But if he is made fun of for that or criticized for that in any sort of way, that's when it becomes a really bad thing when we force people to stay in those boxes. Um, And moving up the pyramid, our next level is language and jokes. Um, And what we often see is that language and jokes are used um, to keep people inside those boxes. Um, We do a whole activity with the students uh, about, you know, we list all of the all of the stereotypes that that men are supposed to be, all of the stereotypes that women are supposed to be, right? And then when they step outside of those boxes, what names are they called? So I'm sure that 
everyone here listening can think of some names that, uh, you know, a kid in middle school, a, y- a young boy in middle school would be called if he was caught crying or if he, you know, uh, did poorly in gym class, you kick like a girl, you know, quit being a sissy, quit being a pussy, where it's like that. So we do this whole activity where we see not only our stereotypes negative when we force people in them, but it creates even more violence, verbal violence, um, when we criticize people for stepping outside of the box. Um, after language and jokes, we have objectification and dehumanization. A lot of the words that people are called when they're stepping outside of those stereotypes or just words that, you know, negative names that people are called in general are really quite objectifying and dehumanizing, which just means treating someone like less of a human and more like an object, um, yeah. Uh, and, and that is, I think oftentimes we think that language and jokes, it's, you know, it's just a joke, lighten up. It's not a big deal. Those are things we hear all the time, but we don't think about the very serious consequences of what happens to somebody's humanity when they're just called a name over and over and over again. Uh, and then to continue to move up the pyramid, discrimination is next. And we always ask sort of, you know, do you think that it's easier to treat somebody unfairly or poorly if you see them as less than a human and more than an object? And the answer is yes, right? When you strip someone of their humanity, then it's going to be easier to see them as less than you, to treat them less fairly than you do. So that's why discrimination is sort of next. And um, different examples of discrimination that we see are, you know, the pay, the wage gap um, between men and women, women making uh, less money than men for equal uh, work and equal levels of experience. And then we also see discrimination in uh Unfortunately, in sexuality, uh, in some states, it's still legal for an employer to fire an employee if they find out that that employee is a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, So, again, we're not getting yet to, like, the forms of physical violence um, that we take very seriously in our society, like sexual violence and things. But we're but we're moving up steadily. Um, Victim blaming is the next one. And victim blaming is simply, I mean, what it sounds like. It's blaming the victim partially or fully for a crime happening against them. Uh, And victim blaming is a huge form of violence in in a way that our, our culture just continues to tolerate violence because victim blaming places the responsibility on the survivors or the victims for crimes, right? And not responsibility on the perpetrators, the people uh, creating these crimes. So it lets people get away with things, right? So um, it'll just create more violence in our society when we have that like unequal scale of whose responsibility is it to stop, you know, assault from happening. Assailants, not survivors, right? Um, But unfortunately, in our culture, we see victim blaming a lot, which doesn't help end violence at all. It just, again, gives excuses. It lets people get away with things. Um, And then the top three tiers of violence um, on the pyramid of violence are verbal abuse, uh, which can include some of those names from jokes and and language, that level that I talked about, Um, name calling, uh, verbal threats, things like that. And then um, physical violence would be next, and that is very common um, that when we think of types of violence, physical violence is probably the first one that comes to mind. Um, and then sexual violence is sort of the top of our pyramid here at Sava Center. So to begin to understand sexual assault as a whole, I guess, at Sava Center, uh, what we believe and what we teach to others in our classes is that we don't just attack it right away. We like to look at our culture as a whole um, because we, we truly believe that it's 
it's not necessarily one step leads to another. You know, we have some kids who challenge us like, oh, so I'm going to make a joke one day and then a year from now, you know, I'm going to be a murderer or like hit somebody. And it's not a one leads to the next necessarily. Um, I think that can happen, but it's just that when we support those forms of violence at the bottom, like when we support stereotypes, when we support or say it's not a big deal to uh, say those jokes or use that language, what we're doing is we are creating a culture that supports and tolerates those like higher levels of violence. And I guess it would really be important to understand that pyramid, to understand maybe even even if you're not somebody who's a perpetrator necessarily, but if you're participating at any level or accepting of those levels, then you are sort of allowing somebody else to be a perpetrator, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, That's absolutely right. Like we don't say, uh, explain this entire pyramid to our students like saying that like that kid who's going to challenge us like oh well if I just make a joke you're saying I'm going to be a murderer like no that's not at all what we're saying but we want to create a culture in a society that's more aware of that there are plenty of people who maybe um are you know saying jokes and using language um that they don't understand that that is doing what it's doing in our culture yeah I mean you you said it Yes. We, we can make the most change, we think, as individuals, as peers, um, on those lower levels. Because unfortunately, we cannot all, you know, throw on superhero costumes and capes and stop every single instance of physical violence in a home or, or sexual violence between peers or, or family members from happening as much as we want to. We unfortunately cannot. Um, but what we can do on a daily basis is look at ourselves at, at those bottom levels and say, well, what stereotypes am I maybe supporting in, in a way that's negative for some people and things like that? Right. Or yeah. what what names have I heard somebody mm-hmm. be called that I yeah. have allowed? Or... Mm-hmm. And how can we stop ourselves from using that language? But also how can we, you know, help um, each other out and call each other out in a supportive way and just create a culture because if we're less tolerant of forcing people into stereotypes and, um, criticizing them for stepping outside of that, um, then I believe we'll be less tolerant of other things. Yeah, absolutely. What about the role? I would imagine that, I mean, you're talking about this pyramid of violence and I can sort of like already things pop up in my head of, oh, I understand that. And this is my example of that in my head, or I understand this, or as a parent, oh, my son mentioned, you know, like I can automatically come up with Mm -hmm. real life examples that fit those those levels of that pyramid pretty easily, Mm -hmm. (laughs) unfortunately, I guess. But I'm also imagining that a lot of this is probably fueled by media and what people see. So can you talk a little bit about... Mm -hmm kind of the, the role of the media in this? Yeah, definitely. Um, so when we're talking, uh, about stereotypes and about media, I mean, it's ever present. I feel like it's the cyclical thing, right? We have these stereotypes that we sort of see in our culture and then it's just perpetuated in the media even more and it just continues and continues. Um, but like some of the stereotypes just to, 
continue on with that. Um, we have, you know, that males are supposed to be dominant and in charge and um, not take no for an answer. They're supposed to be the pursuer in a relationship, right? Not the pursued. Um, we teach men that uh, there's this stereotype that all men have to be obsessed with sex um, and sort of have this like sexual conquest, um, have multiple partners. And um, oftentimes we see in our media men being praised for sexual encounters. Um, and then for females, we see um, the stereotypes that women are supposed to be more submissive or agreeable, um, weaker than men, just physically. Um, they're not supposed to be as into sex. We have this stereotype and we see this sort of trope of the woman in movies, I think, um, sort of dangling sex in front of a guy or being withholding. Um, so we we already we create this kind of um, culture in general. Uh, where men are the pursuers, they're don dominant, they're they're not taking no for an answer, right? And then women are supposed to be that sort of like hard to get, you know, um, hard to get, not as into sex, sort of withholding. So we create this culture where we already have sort of this like acceptable like chase of guys supposed to like they're supposed to like chase the the girl right there's that game um which i think can be really harmful and contribute to that rape culture that we have because what if a woman does say no you know um so those are just some of the stereotypes and how how just how negative um they actually are in our society though but like I said, these stereotypes are found in our media everywhere, right? We um, see stereotypes of guys being in that dominant role, being the in-charge person, being the boss, being the pursuer in most relationships in our films. Um, and then we have, you know, those stereotypes just roles over and over and over again. You could point to countless movies where men and women sort of adhere to these roles. Um, yeah, so it and it just becomes ever... It, it's just, it becomes almost like truth in our society because we see it over and over again, but it, it's not necessarily true, right? These are stereotypes that we have learned over time. Men and women are not inherently all of these ways, but as we grow up, that's what we see over and over and over again. So of course, that's what someone is going to grow up and learn. Oh, this is how I'm supposed to behave. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, and it's, I mean, I'm sitting here as a parent thinking like, you know, your kid is presented with that on a regular basis. So it certainly does solidify those steps of the pyramid that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, it's just this kind of like deep cultural understanding. Yeah. And it's not even, I guess I, I have sort of only alluded to like movies and TV shows, like roles and characters that men and women are playing. But if you turn on the television and you look at, you know, commercials for toys, I don't I mean, this isn't like a, a new, like groundbreaking topic. People have been studying this for a while, but um, what you see is that guys are, you know, or, or little boys are advertised for like action figures and Nerf guns and all, all of these like toys for children, but that come in like orange and green and blue. And they are more sort of like aggressive in nature for sort of like aggressive play. Like, look at this explosion, look at all these like fun, active toys. Right. And then for little girls, um, they are sold, you know, baby dolls or like home house sets or little cooking things. Um, and it's pink and it's purple. So it's just crazy. Right. It's, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I'm even thinking, and uh, you might not even know about this if you're not in the toy section <laughs> a lot, but the discrepancy between Legos now make sets for boys and girls exactly. and like the 
they're in totally different colors. And even the Lego figures that they sell with the girl sets are completely different than mm-hmm. the figures that they sell with the boy sets. And that's something like it's always been. Yeah. Well, if you're someone, you know, you kind of didn't know, and now you know about this period of pyramid of violence, how can an individual, an individual person make a difference within this pyramid? Um, that's a great question. I think that it's first just understanding that, you know, the problem is, is bigger than we think it is. The problem with sexual violence in our culture is not like just about sexual violence. It's not its own, you know, neat little packaged problem that we get to deal with. It's a much larger problem that has to do with our entire culture and how we're raising our kids and how we are, you know, seeing our roles in society. I think that that's a really excellent first step is just understanding that, we, in order to end sexual violence, need to make a cultural shift. We have to make a change in direction in some way. Um, so that's like a very big answer and isn't a very like tangible thing that people can actually do. Um, and I understand that, but I, I think the more people that we get on board for like, okay, this is a problem that is, you know, being perpetuated in a lot of different ways in our media, in the way that we um, have our conversations with our, our children and our friends and our family. Um, so I think that's one step. And then sort of, like I said, um, unfortunately not like knowing that we cannot put on our superhero costumes and go out and stop all of those problems from happening, but, um, that we can look at that bottom level and, and sort of look at ourselves and our friends and our families and see what stereotypes we might be tolerating or what language and jokes we might be tolerating. Um, what media we're supporting is a big one too. Um, a lot of our media uh, doesn't do a great job of showing a diverse amount of people just in general or a diversity among men and women or other genders. So being supportive of media that does and maybe critical of media that um, enforces or reinforces those rigid stereotypes, um, that can be a big one as well. Yeah. Are there actual definitions maybe surrounding these terms too, to get concrete for a second about, is there like, can you define harassment and assault? Yes, we can define harassment, sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, and the definition of sexual harassment is any unwanted sexual attention or behavior that happens repeatedly while at school or work. And what we do is we sort of, sort of take this definition and then we break it down and we look at some key words and phrases there. Um, and the first sort of word is the unwanted. So it's any unwanted sexual attention or behavior. And we always then look at that and ask, well, who gets to decide what is unwanted? And the answer is always the person who is experiencing it, right? The, not the person who is um, enacting the behavior or harassment, but anyone who is around and experiencing it, observing it in any sort of way, they get to decide what makes them uncomfortable for themselves. Um, another thing that we say is it's the impact of the behavior that matters, not the intent. Uh, so that goes back with the who gets to decide what is wanted or unwanted. Um, And we use this example of like, if I told a joke right now of a sexual nature that I thought was really funny, but it made you really uncomfortable, like what's my intent with telling a joke? It's obviously to make people laugh. Right. Right. Um, But if the impact of that 
does not match the intention. It's always the impact that matters. So if, you know, this joke is something that people do not take very well, then that's, that's what truly matters in that situation. And even though my intention was never to make anyone uncomfortable or to sexually harass anyone in any way, um, I, I would need to own up to that and be like, okay, well, you know, it doesn't matter how I intended it. This is the way it was received. And now I have to deal with that. Um, So that's sort of that first part of the definition to break it down. And then we also uh, sort of focus in on that word repeatedly. Why does it have to happen repeatedly? And that's because, you know, if I told this joke and uh, you told me, Hannah, don't tell that joke on my podcast. That was inappropriate. (laughs) I didn't like it. Um, And then I stopped. I was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Thank you for telling me. Then that would not be sexual harassment because... I have stopped the behavior after, you know, being told or informed once. Um, But if I received that same response from you or could just tell that you or anyone else around was incredibly uncomfortable and didn't like it, it doesn't even have to be that verbal, like, please stop. If you are not laughing and walking away from me, I think that I could pick up from a social cue that it wasn't uh, well received. But if I continued that behavior, that means that I am repeating a behavior knowingly Um, making you or someone else uncomfortable. So that's why that repeated word is in the definition because harassment is about repeatedly intentionally um, performing some sort of behavior uh, that that makes somebody uncomfortable um, and and doing that on purpose. Uh, And then why school or work? So, I mean, certainly people can be harassed or even sexually harassed, like outside of school or work, that can happen. Um, But when we are teaching our students, we do school or work because uh, with that definition, there are like certain laws that are put in place. And one law in particular, which I think we'll get into a little bit more called Title IX, that protects students from sexual harassment while they're at work. So yeah. Um, So that's the sexual harassment definition. Do you want me to go on and do assault now? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, so sexual assault uh, is different than sexual harassment in several ways. Um, the definition off the bat is any unwanted sexual activity without the consent or against the will of another person. Um, and there are a few um big differences that that's probably the easiest way to differentiate sexual assault from sexual harassment. Um, sexual assault, uh, almost always crosses the touch barrier. There are three exceptions with that. So sexual harassment though, will never, if it includes any sort of physical touch or activity that is non-consensual, then it'll, that's not sexual harassment, but it'll fall under sexual assault. Um, so uh, the biggest kind of easiest way to differentiate the two. Um, But like I said, there are three exceptions to the touch barrier rule when we define sexual assault and look at examples. Um, And the first one would be exhibitionism um, or flashing, as it's more commonly known. And we think of that as, you know, this person walking around in a trench coat and then they like open it up and they're naked underneath. (laughs) So that's, you know, the the way that we sort of view flashing in our culture and society is maybe a little bit more... uh, Trivial, but it's actually, you know, very traumatizing and very scarring for many people. And even though that doesn't cross the touch barrier in any sort of way, it's something that you cannot unsee. And it's 
still falls under the definition of sexual assault. Um, the next one would be sort of the opposite of that, but uh, voyeurism or uh, peeping, as we more commonly know. So if anyone is in a situation in a, in a bathroom, taking a shower or in their bedroom, changing some place where they're expecting privacy and have not consented to someone watching them um, as they undress, um, then that would be considered sexual assault as well, even though it doesn't cross the touch barrier. Um, and then our third sort of exception to that touch barrier rule is um, sexting. So the sending of nude photos between minors or an adult and a minor. So if a, a minor, anyone under the age of 18 is involved in sending nude photos, at least in the state of Colorado, pretty sure this is similar in other places, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, but in the state of Colorado, um, sending or receiving or keeping of nude photos of someone under the age of 18, even if it's two, you know, 17 year olds who are consenting to that, um, can be considered the creation or production, um, and distribution of child pornography. So technically falls under that sexual assault definition. Right. I had a, a, a personal story about that, like a friend of mine who uh -huh. had, had her child involved in something like that. And it was kind of news to them that, yeah. that even looking at something on somebody's phone, you know, that you could, you could then be implicated for mm -hmm. assault for just participating in, in viewing something like that. And I felt like, wow, that's something I really would like to know as a parent. I feel like I should be telling my kids that they need to know. Yeah, definitely. It's really important. And I feel like it is news to a lot of people. It's not talked about very much. Certainly, I don't, I kind of get the sense that when we're going, we're, we are going in and talking to middle schoolers, there's not a lot of people in their lives talking to them about sexting, mm -hmm. but that could be happening like more than we maybe know. And yeah. it's important to give them that information yeah. um, and just say like, you know, even if it's a consensual thing, here are the the risks of it. Right. You know, like you don't know who will see it, first of all, because um, you are probably only consenting for one person to see it. But once it's out there, it's out there and you don't have control over what happens to it. So if they show it to someone else or even if you accidentally send it to someone else, there's that those sort of like social consequences. But then also there are legal consequences that we think that they right. should be aware of. And we're just like, we just need to, you know, let you guys know yeah. the truth about no, that. I think like I was having a conversation with my son and I can't remember all the ins and outs of, of my friend and what happened with her son, but I knew that he was like sort of brought in by the police for kind of being a part of something that he wasn't. It was just because he had participated in viewing yeah. something. And I really yeah. don't know all the details, but I was trying to tell my 12 year old, like, Hey, I found this out and I think you should know. So that's kind of, I mean, that's what this show is all about too. Like, these are the things you need to know as a parent and you yes. need to be teaching your child this. Cause that, those are serious implications mm -hmm. that you could, you could fall into yeah. without really understanding mm -hmm. before it's too late. Yeah. Even if like there are, you know, some situations where you receive maybe a nude photo of a minor as a minor, um, and there are different consequences. Like if you receive that and if you then forward it along mm -hmm. to other people, um, but even if you just receive it and you don't do anything with it, but it stays on your phone, you don't delete it. You could still potentially, be charged with like possession of child, child pornography. pornography. But I will say that even if you receive it, I think it's, mm, I should look for sure, but I'm pretty sure if it's like 48 hours or something, if you delete it, then you, you won't 
be right. charged if you receive something and then delete it. So that's something that all parents should talk it, to their totally, kids about. Totally. Yeah. And that is like, to me, I mean, it's why this show exists. It's why it's like part of parenting today about things that you just need to be informed. Yeah. Was there anything else on that definition of assault? I derailed you. <laughs> oh no. Um, there are just a few other, um, my more minor differences between assault and harassment. Um, we say that sexual harassment, like I said, has to happen repeatedly, whereas sexual assault does not have to be a repeated behavior. It only has to happen once to be defined as sexual assault. Um, and it's not limited to school or work within that definition. And when we're talking about um, Title IX, it can happen anywhere. Um, and we also uh, point out that sexual it, it falls under the category of sexual assault um, if there's any sort of sexual relationship between a minor and a person in a position of trust as well. Um, even if some one thinks that that's maybe a consensual thing, but anyone under the age of 18 in any sort of relationship with like a coach or a teacher or a religious leader, uh, I don't know, youth group leader, doctor, therapist, um, that will still be considered sexual assault as well. Because for sexual assault, you have to have consent. And when we move into talking about consent, um, one of the sort of requirements of consent is having equal power. And a minor does not have the same amount of power as that person in a position of trust, which is, I'll just go ahead and define position of trust um, if anyone doesn't know. But it's sort of those examples I gave, teacher, coach, um, it can include parent, anyone who like has the well-being of that child in mind has some sort of authority um, over that child's decision making or, you know, a teacher can withhold grades or a coach can withhold them playing their sport. Um, uh, a, a babysitter, you know, is in charge of them for that amount of time that they're there. So, and let's go, I want to go on and move to what the definition of consent is, but before we do that, can you go ahead and talk about, um, you'd mentioned title nine, which was some policy mm -hmm. specific to school. And I'd love to know more about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Title IX is um, the official law states no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So it's long-winded. But it essentially means that while you are in school um, and while you are, you know, at school activities, um, you the, the school is legally required to protect its students from sexual harassment, um, which means that if a student is experiencing harassment of any sort of in a, of any sort um, in the school, they um, sh should be able to go to any sort of teacher or counselor or principal um, or coach and tell them that, um, at which point the school would be required to take that report seriously, perform an investigation, and then go um, and try to support that student in any sort of way, whether it's like moving class schedules around so they don't have to be in class with the harasser um, or things like that. They cannot just take that information and then just like brush it under the rug because that's illegal for schools as it stands. <laughs> Anything else parents should know about Title IX or anybody should know about Title IX? Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so every it's either every school um, itself individually or every sort of district it, at this point is required to have a Title IX coordinator. So while the students, as it stands now, can go to you know any sort of school authority like their teacher or counselor, um, there is one designated person who is responsible and in, in charge of making sure that those uh, allegations are taken seriously and that something is being done. Um, I'll also say a, l- a little bit of history. Um, it was a originally enacted in 1972 um, as sort of we commonly sort of see it when we look at Title IX and its history as the like sports law that allowed women to play college sports. They saw this discrepancy and, you know, funding for men's sports and uh, versus funding for women's sports um, and women having to do a lot of their own sort of fundraising for that. Um, but then it, it became this like overarching umbrella of all sorts of gender discrimination. And since sexual harassment is a type of sexual violence um, and gender violence, um, that's why it sort of is covered by Title IX. Um, Unfortunately, uh, as very recently, Title IX is actually in the process of being changed, um, and I'm not exactly sure where that stands now. I think they're still in this like period um, where they are reviewing comments. There, there was a, com- a new proposed Title IX rule that, unfortunately, uh, really um, made the amount that Title IX protects survivors and victims at schools, it really sort of swung the scale over into the favor of protecting the students who are reported, like the, you know, alleged perpetrators. Um, so that's that's sort of an unfortunate thing that's in the works. There was a comment period where people could, you know, share their grievances um, with the government as to why this change shouldn't happen. And um, that comment period ended in January. So it's been a while, but nothing so far. I, I don't think it's been solidified yet, but we're still in that sort of like waiting period. So it's interesting to talk to the students about Title IX and share with them the information I just shared with you and tell them that they're protected and these are all the people they can go to when that might be changing in the very near future. So still waiting to hear about that. Okay, well, we'll, we'll keep everybody posted yes. whenever changes come through. What about, before we move on to consent, any kind of examples about um, harassment and assault that we should know? Yeah. Um, so some examples of sexual harassment, I sort of gave one away with talking about, you know, any sort of sexual joke that makes somebody uncomfortable. Um, but sexual harassment, common ones that we see are also like wolf whistling or cat calling. I can't whistle and make the noise, but you know, you see it in cartoons. Um, but any sort of sexual gestures or comments, um, rating people's appearances. I think that that happens in some schools with students like, oh, they're a 10, oh, they're a five things like that. Um, Making out in front of the view of others. So like types of PDA um, is actually a very surprising one to a lot of our students and a lot of people and maybe parents. Um, And it's not like, even if two people are consensually, you know, maybe it's just a peck Mm -hmm. before or after school, like that's usually fine. But again, it's that impact of the behavior that matters, not the intent. Um, so if there are two students who are consensually just like making out by their car or in front of their locker, um, that might be a really great time for them, but not a really great time for everyone around. So that can be an example of sexual harassment if that's, you know, 
getting in the way of someone feeling comfortable and safe at school. Um, staring at body parts, repeatedly asking somebody out over and over and over again, even after they've said no. So not taking that no for an answer or um, pressure for certain sexual activities or things like that. Um, just really any unwanted sexual attention that, again, does not cross that touch barrier would be examples of sexual harassment. Something that would probably be relevant as well, one that I maybe missed, would be sexual um, messages or chats or texts um, that don't include, again, those like photos of minors, so like sexting, um, because that would fall under assault again. But, you know, students who are sending messages over and over of a sexual nature, that would be considered harassment as well. So I know a lot of kids are messaging each other. Yeah. 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 And then some examples of sexual assault would be um, sexual grabbing or pinching in any sort of way. Um, Like I said, flashing, peeping, um, sexting between minors, uh, slapping butts, giving wedgies, pulling off or at clothes, so like slapping bra straps and things like that. Those are things that a lot of our students are surprised to hear um, because I think that when we hear the word or the term sexual assault, we immediately go to rape or attempted rape. And that, I mean, of course, is sexual assault and falls under that umbrella. Um, But sexual assault includes a whole variety of other things as well that we don't often take as seriously, Um, like the, you know, wedgies or slapping butts in the hallway or something. Um, But a conversation we've started to have with our students is that even if you think it's just a joke, it's my friend, my friend doesn't really care. It's like, are you giving that person the opportunity to say no when you just go up and, you know, like pull their bra strap or smack their butt? Uh, and, And then what are you saying about their body and their relationship with this, with their body and your relationship saying that like you have the right to, you know, touch them in any sort of way. And they don't have the right to like stop that behavior from happening if they don't want to. Um, so I think it's important to go over those, those, uh, examples of sexual assault because they're not ones that we often think of. Yeah. Well, let's move on to consent. So we have the definition of harassment and um, assault. Let's talk about the definition of consent. So the definition of consent is uh, agreement or permission. It's very simple. Um, It's when two or more people agree to do the same thing at the same time in the same way. So it's just all parties on board, thumbs up. Yes, let's do this, right? That's what consent is. It's very simple, actually. Um, But there are a few different requirements in order to achieve consent, and we can break that down more specifically if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So um, it's several components, like I said, um, even though it has that simple definition of like just agreement. um, But first, it must be active, not passive. And this is a really important one. Um, There must be an active and enthusiastic yes for consent to be given. whether or rather a a passive response would be, you know, a shrug of the shoulders or maybe, I don't know, um, or just even simply standing there or laying there, right? Um, That is not an active yes. That would just be a passive response. And that is not somebody saying yes. Um, We used to hear this phrase, um, I don't know, a few years ago, the phrase no means no. Right. That was a big one that came Mm -hmm. around. And 
we think that, you know, that's a step in the right direction. It's having a conversation about consent, right? Um, but no doesn't always mean no. You know, saying nothing could mean no. no. Saying I don't know or maybe could mean no. So the phrase that we like to use that's much better is yes means yes. So it's just yes that means yes um, all the time. Um, because if someone, you know, is unconscious, you know, sleeping or is passed out from drugs or alcohol or they they are not able to give that enthusiastic yes, right? Um, and like I said, if someone says that, like, I'm not sure, okay, maybe that's not that active and enthusiastic yes that is required for consent. Any misconceptions, common misconceptions about consent? Definitely. Um, I think that the biggest one is that asking for consent will like ruin the mood um, or that you don't always need consent if you, you know, have been dating the same person forever or have even been married to the same person. Um, but what we say is that consent does not ruin the mood at all. It actually it makes it better. What really ruins the mood is somebody later going back saying, I was really uncomfortable with that or even having to stop something and be like, no, 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 you didn't ask me. Um, but it, it, when you get consent, it's both people, you know, feeling, knowing that they're feeling comfortable with what they're doing. So, um, I think that that's a misconception and it's not something that we see very often. I think that misconception, one of the places it comes from is from media again, um, never showing us cases where, you know, two people before they start making out on screen and all the music plays, they're not really having a conversation before about what they're comfortable with. Um, yeah. And then back to the, uh, you know, dating or being married to the same person, uh, there's maybe a myth where like, well, you know what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. So you don't really have to ask anymore. And while there's definitely, you know, like some nuances about like reading body language, it might not be like a, a verbal yes. Um, maybe in the, but I hesitate to even say that because, what we teach and, and what we really do want is that active and enthusiastic verbal. Yes. Um, but even if two people have been together for a long time and, you know, made out or had sex 99 times, like on the hundredth time, you still have to ask and make sure that both people are on board with that. Um, what are some ways to ask consent? Uh, some ways that you can ask for consent. That one's pretty simple. Uh, just asking, is it okay if we blank? Do mm-hmm. you want to blank? Or are you comfortable with this? Do you want me to keep going? Um, a whole myriad of ways. We also say you can try to lighten the mood in some ways and be like, are you down to get down? Do you, wanna, <laughs> you know, there is some fun. It doesn't have to be this like, okay, let's have this very serious conversation now, but I mean, it can be, and that can be very good. But, um, when you're asking in that, like, Hey, are you down to get down? Or do you want to like come over tonight and whatever, when you're saying those words that aren't necessarily explicit, it's important to remember to also know like what, uh, what you're actually consenting to. Cause that's yes. another component of consent. You have to be aware of, of what you're consenting to. So, um, hanging out or down to get down, that mm-hmm. might mean a very different thing to one person than to another person. So making sure that there's that understanding of what's actually going to happen. Yeah. Um, and you- any ways to say and hear no, Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so that's another important part of the conversation that we talk to our students about. Um, 
some ways that you can say no if you're asked for consent, because we talk about how um, extremely challenging it can be sometimes to tell people no, especially if we care about them um, or we, we love them, right? Um, but it's always, we, we really drive home the point that it's always okay to say no to something that you're uncomfortable with. It doesn't make you mean or selfish or uncaring. Um, it's your body, so it's your choice. Um, you always have that right to stick up for your boundary. Um, and you can say it explicitly, like, I'm not comfortable with that, uh, or not right now, maybe I'm not feeling it. You can offer an alternative, like let's watch a movie instead. Or, you know, if you're really, really not feeling it, be like, ask me in a year or ask me in 10 years. Um, lots of different ways. Right. And then we also have that conversation about how it can be really frustrating and really difficult if we do all the right things, we ask for consent, but then we receive a no, right? Some ways that we might be feeling would be embarrassed or uncomfortable, very awkward. Um, and it's okay, of course, to feel those things or to even feel frustrated or disappointed, but it's never okay to sort of pour those feelings or dump those feelings onto somebody else and make them feel guilty about it. Um, but just, you know, taking that in stride and moving along saying, thank you for letting me know. I appreciate knowing where your boundary is. Um, thanks for taking care of yourself, all things like that. Cause it's just as important for us to respect somebody else's no, as it is for someone else to respect our choice. I love all of that. Is there anything else that you want to cover with consent in terms of consent? Um, there are a few more sort of requirements for consent that I didn't get to, and I can go over those sort of briefly yeah. if you'd like. So like I said, consent must be active, not passive. Um, that's the big one that we start with. Um, it has to be that yes is yes. Um, the second one, the second requirement for consent is that consent must be a choice. Um, and that means that someone must be able to freely say yes or no without being afraid of any sort of consequences. Um, so even if someone feels forced or pressured, um, not even in necessarily a physical way, but in a social way, like if you, you know, I'm going to start this rumor about you if you don't do these certain things. If they feel like they cannot say no, then even if they say yes in that situation, that's still not consent because consent has to be that free choice, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so then we, we talk about coercion and how um, coercion, you know, is the act of trying to convince somebody to do something by persuasion, threats or force that they don't want to do. Um, and so even if someone says yes to like being coerced or pressured, um, if they hear things like, well, if you loved me, you would do this. Or if you if you don't do this, I'll break up with you or um, everyone else is doing this sort of thing or just asking over and over and over again until someone says yes, that's, that's really that using that pressure. And, and then, you know, it's not consent because someone was pressured into saying yes. Um, and then like I sort of alluded to earlier, consent requires equal power, uh, which means there cannot be consent between two people. If one of them, first of all, is in that position of trust and the other one is a minor. Um, and there are some other ways that power imbalances might occur, like potentially physical size, if that size is being used as a way to, um, to gain consent, which wouldn't actually be consent if they're using their physical size to pressure someone. Um, or if someone is, uh, you know, sober while another person is high or drunk, that person has more power. They have more awareness about what's going on. Um, and that also goes back to choice. Cause if someone is too intoxicated to understand 
that choice, what they're saying yes to, um, then that's also not consent. Uh, and then lastly, the last requirement for consent is that consent is a process, which means that we sort of talked about this already. It's not this one time thing that you get, but it's an ongoing conversation that you're having with somebody. Um, so if you consent once to something, um, that doesn't mean that you're consenting to it all the time in the future. So even if, you know, you've kissed somebody once, it doesn't mean that you're, you know, consenting to kiss them all the time, anytime, um, and then if you say yes to something and then you no longer feel like it, if you're in the middle of, you know, some great makeout session and then suddenly you're not feeling it anymore, um, that's totally okay. Consent. It's, it's not that, oh, well, I said yes, so I have to. It's always a process that you are, um, a conversation that you're engaging with someone. Um, so you have to get consent before every activity we say, hand-holding, kissing, sex, and then how often every single time. Right. So those are our requirements of consent that we go through with our students. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. I really, I think it's great. I mean, we, like I had mentioned earlier, we're going to do some additional episodes about teaching consent, but I, even today, just understanding it, I learned new stuff. So I know that even just, just knowing more about mm -hmm. all of this is really, really important. So thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for reaching out and having Sava Center uh, be a part of this sort of series. We think that's awesome and incredibly important. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode and a special thank you to both Hannah Butler and the Sava Center for all of this great content and all of the great content to come. We're going to have some resources from the Sava Center up on the website at www.boysbuiltbetter.com. So go ahead and check that out. You can also like us on Facebook if you want to get even more information. And as always, if you love the show, subscribe and leave us a review that helps other people find it. Thanks for listening. 